Hi, it's Shana here. Before this episode starts, I'm popping in with a quick reminder about our upcoming CEU on Thursday, May 16th on a person-centered approach to behavior management. School taught us a lot about ABA. However, the thing with ABA is that it's a science and it's constantly evolving. So a lot of what we learned back then doesn't always apply now. Today, we want to use a person-centered approach to behavior management, um, but what does that look like and how can our learners still make progress in this kind of approach? So join us live on Thursday, May 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time as Shira discusses how to use a person-centered approach to behavior management with your learners. This CEU is presented by our very own Shira Karpel. You can earn one learning CEU for ACE, QABA, or IBAO. Join us live at this event or to watch the recording asynchronously, go to howtoaba.com forward slash CEU. See you then. Hi, I'm Shira Karpow. And I'm Shana Gaunt, and we're board certified behavior analysts. At How To ABA, we provide practical resources, community, and support to ABA professionals. In each episode of our podcast, we will be having real conversations with real people sharing real stories about ABA. We'll share relevant strategies and actionable tips that will make us all better ABA practitioners. It's the ABA content you need that you're not going to learn in a textbook. Hi, everyone. We are excited to have today Tamar Finkelstein on the podcast. And she is an RBT who is, you know, really in the field, working with the kids. And um, I'm excited to hear more from her. Welcome, Tamar. Well, thank, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, so can we start by you telling us a little bit about how you got into the field? Um, I know you just finished school, so you're probably mm -hmm. still fresh and have a fresh perspective, but what, what brought you to ABA? I think what brought me to the field is a little more unique compared to what most people would, most people would say, um, when I was two years old, I had a diagnosis of persuasive development disorder, which was kind of another name for autism. I got it at tender age two. And my mom played kind of a big role in taking me to like ABA and therapy and have early intervention, which is highly talked about in the field. And I guess as I got older and understood the impact it had on me and the opportunities I've have gotten, I kind of wanted to get into the field as like a thank you. And I've always kind of loved working with and helping people. So that was kind of like my kickstart into the field was my diagnosis. Wow. So I, that diagnosis, I don't even believe exists anymore. So yes, today, you know, it would have been ASD. Correct. And um, you would have been like all the levels too. It's like a whole different ballgame now. Yeah. So you had ABA as young as two years old. Yes. Oh, wow. Until what age? Until what age? Um, I don't know if I can pinpoint the exact age. You know, I just know it was early intervention. I went to private school to like high school. I don't know. I can't, I don't know if I can really pinpoint the exact age. So I'm guessing it was a positive experience. Yeah, it was a positive experience. Okay. Um, that's super interesting. So then you wanted to go to school and kind of mm -hmm. become the therapist that yeah. you worked with as a kid. Exactly. I actually started my undergrad in childhood and youth, and then I went right away into ABA. The same school had one of the, like, the most well-known ABA programs. What's great about it was, you know, it didn't involve me having to do a crazy academic paper because the master's was more course-based and, apl and applied-based, which I think worked better for me than writing a whole thesis. 
Oh, yeah. It was in my favor. Yeah. How interesting was it for you that you were doing something in child and youth to start and you had the background in ABA without even really probably knowing that you had the background in ABA and all of those principles? Mm -hmm. Were you the one putting up your hand going, no, 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 just try reinforcement. (laughs) No, no, no. Think about the function. (laughs) <laughs> I just remember when I took the autism course in third year, you know, I was really eager to impress my professor at the time, uh, Professor Tricia Baus. So I would study my ass off for all her like pop quizzes and I would do the best in the class because I worked really hard. So mm-hmm. I got I, I was at the top of her class. I got 100 percent in everything. So that's amazing. <laughs> would you say the field has changed a lot that you're aware of or like did you only start really learning about the, more of the theory as an adult? I feel like I got more aware of the theory as an adult, but based on what my mom has told me and how, like, I think even though there's wait lists and the government, even though the field could be more accessible for sure, I think there was less less accessibility back in my day with my mother and her, like, getting this, her learning that I've had this diagnosis and having no idea what to do having to drive me to like Hamilton to like even learn how to talk. So. Wow. Yeah. There was for sure less, um, it was less known, you know, ABA. I mean, mm-hmm. it can't be that old, but it could have been 20 years ago. Yeah. And the field was still in its infancy. And so yeah. it's probably hard to even know that ABA existed. And um, I mean, kudos to your mom for doing all that research and like really mm-hmm. the best, the best approach, which and- seemed- was a good decision. You grew mm-hmm. up in Ontario. So you were saying that, you know, there was no funding at all when you were young yes. and now no. you're, you're still government waitlist, et cetera. You know, in Ontario, there's still yeah. access to insurance money like there is in the States. Oh um, yeah. The States could have better resources for sure. They had more centers. I think things are more, I could be wrong. Could correct me on this. Things are a little more regulated. I think we recently just got regulated. I believe, I know we were talking briefly about it. I think even during my master's, I don't think the field was like regulated yet. In Ontario? Yeah. yeah. Almost there. We're working towards it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hopefully soon. Um, So, so now that you're, you know, getting into the field and, Mm -hmm working? Have you encountered any obstacles in whether that's, you know, finding a job or experience or supervision or, you know, what's been your biggest obstacle in getting into the field? I would, I don't know. I feel like my biggest obstacle was maybe not doing more research in the beginning. You know, I think I was just so eager to like jump into the field, jump into the to this job that I wish I had sat down a bit more and really kind of looked at what was out there before like getting my first job and seeing what centers really were the best out there because there are a lot of centers and I think the challenging thing is quality over quantity. You know, there's a lot of centers, but you know, there's, it's possible that a lot may not be providing the best service. So. Mm -hmm. So what's your experience been on that? Because I know that this is a big challenge for our field, right? Especially in the States where. Yeah agencies are just becoming so enormous and they're servicing so many kids yeah. that it's becoming, you know, quantity over quality in some places. So yes. Um, what's your experience been in that? I'm not going to name any names. I'm not going to name where I was in it, where I was employed originally, but I found that when I was at my old place, I didn't feel like there was enough training. And I think to be successful in this field, training is key. Like you have to like 
do so much training because a lot of the times I find that on paper, you know, it sounds so easy, but it's not, you know, especially, you know, if a behavior happens and you're not handling it properly or if you're not following a BSP appropriately, you know, that can get you to get that can get you into some serious hot water, you know, if you're not following ethics and implementing the right protocols. And I feel with a lot of these centers, that's overlooked, I think, as a training. And I don't think people realize how crucial that that piece is. And I think people mean well, and especially, you know, the RBTs and the techs and the therapists yeah. who are working with the kids, they also mean well. And yeah. sometimes it's not coming from a place of like, you know, trying to do anything wrong, you know, absolutely it comes from a lack of training, which you're right, where they just don't have the resources. They don't have, you know, the same ethical code that we're held to, or they just might not know the reasons why I shouldn't, you know, restrain this child or why I shouldn't, you know, do this certain, um, approach. So the training is really important, which I think that that's a really good point, but you know, I'm assuming you work with BCBAs, at least who are providing some supervision. Is there, is there mm-hmm. some, some advice you would give to BCBAs who are in that position, who are now overseeing therapists? Like, how could we do that better? How can we do that better? Um, I think making a conscious effort to really make that time to prioritize the training. It's being cautious about what your employee skill set is coming in and how we can improve that and really making mindful choices of giving them initial clients and then building them towards certain things. I think as a BCA who's supervising, it's also thinking about how much you can tackle on because I have high respect for BCBAs. It's a lot of work they have to do to keep track of hours and supervise and be this like coach, you know, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And the things that we have to do sometimes we weren't even trained for, right? Like yeah. we're not trained in management and scheduling and organization and mm-hmm. emotional support and mentoring and all of that stuff kind of just gets dropped on our plate. But you're right. Like so much about what we do should not just be cookie cutter as like, well, I have this kid and I have this therapist. So like, here right. you go. Like you guys are paired together, but looking at the skill set of the therapist and the skill set of the child and the environment. And um, it's a lot more complicated than just like, you know, slapping on a therapist, a kid and saying like, here, you know, go, go run with it. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> thought that has to be, that has to go into that relationship. Um, and I think that's a really good point. I feel like an organizational behavioral management, some kind of like framework should be applied to like ABA. Cause I know of OBM, it helps improve like the, pro- the productivity and flow of businesses. I wonder if we can apply that to like our field a little bit more. Cause I feel like OBM is also an undertapped field. That I don't think people talk a lot about. Yeah. We need to apply our own strategies to our, right? (laughs) Yeah. So would that be, you know, if there was one thing you could change about the field, would it be that training piece or is there something else you think we could do better? I think the big, I think there's a lot of small changes we can make. I also think it's very specific to center specific and client specific and family specific because ABA is not just in a center, you know? ABAs also win home, ABAs also in community centers, ABAs everywhere. So I feel like the changes that need to be made are very individualized to the community, individualized to family, individualized to even like cities, even like to countries, because ABAs practice all over the world. But based on my experience, yeah, I think the training is extremely important, but it has to like apply to like who who's being worked with here. You know, like what can work in the province may not work in like another country. So we have to be mindful about that. 
Perfect. You're right. It's very similar to, you know, when we get into the field or when we start programming, you know, we're taught individualized, you know, for every client, individualized, individualized, individualized. And then you're thrown in Ables or in a VB map and saying, yeah. okay, here, fill in the boxes. Like, how is this individualizing? Yeah. Not. Um, so no. really recognize yeah. that. And, okay. What's applicable, not only to, you know, where you live, but also your culture and, you know, yeah. your family beliefs and parent goals, et cetera. Yeah. Even like the client goals themselves, you know, if they have the capacity to even be like, these are things I think are important because sometimes I think the client themselves are overlooked. And maybe sometimes I feel like the parent goals or other people's goals can overshadow the clients. And that's kind of a fine line, you know? And that's massive. I mean, I grew up working with younger kids, right? And when you've got a two-year-old and a three-year-old that you're working with, of course, you're going to default to the parent because yeah. well, no two-year-old ever has looked at me and said, hey, Shana, my goals for this or this, this, this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Case, I'd be out at two. I'm done. <laughs> done Exa- my job. Exactly. Um, but it's harder than that. You know, it's so figuring how to get the client involved. I think for younger kids, it's harder. But even for some adults, it can be challenging too. Right. But, you know, as some of those kids grow up, so you've got the two-year-olds and the three-year-olds and they grow up and you know what, guess what? They still have autism, yeah. uh, but they have a lot of language and they have, you know, a lot to give back. And we, you're right. We do need to be getting, you know, that client assent anyways, and that client buy-in and say, okay, well, what do you want to work on? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any ABA principles that you incorporate into your day-to-day life? Honestly, I think ABA principles are incorporated every day, every second, and we're not even realizing it. Like ideally, when I work with the kiddos I currently work with, I think obviously reinforcement's a great one, you know, especially if you see them do something that you want to see them doing. That's great. But I think we also do things that we don't like plan on doing what we do anyway. Like we like, ex- we ignore certain behaviors and we may not even have had that planned. Yeah, for sure. Um, and even in our day to day, you know, like we always talk about calendars and mm-hmm. to do lists and schedules. Like we all rely on those too, which is, which are all ABA principles. So you're right. Like they happen all day, every day without us even knowing yeah. It's really just my Starbucks rewards, right? Because if <laughs> I put coffees, I get a free one. Yeah. <laughs> Uber Eats, if you order this, keep doing these orders, you might get a reward. Spend your money. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're all on to us. I think they figured something out. I don't know. <laughs> they figured something out that we don't know about yet. Instant gratification. <laughs> yeah. So is there any advice that anyone's ever given you that you want to share? You know, like the best, it doesn't have to be related to ABA, but just some good advice that's kind of made you, you know, who you are. Any good advice? I think coming from a university background, I think one of the key things I've learned is to really be critical, like really think about what's being told to you. Think about the treatments you're applying. Um, I think just being critical, having an open mind, you know, Mm -hmm. and not just it's like respecting what people have to say, but also questioning it yourself, you know, because I think we all have our own beliefs and perspectives that affect our practices. And I think my background definitely has an effect, especially, you know, thinking about my experience in therapy, but also recognizing that therapy for an ever kid could be different. You know, this can be a, an experience and they may feel like their voices aren't heard and they may not know how to like react to that experience. Mm-hmm. And any good supervisor will want 
um, an RBT or a therapist or anyone to ask questions, you know, especially if it comes yeah. from a place of, you know, learning and inquiring, even if it's some, coming from a place of I'm uncomfortable with this. Could you explain why this is yeah. happening? Exactly. Um, any good supervisor should be open to having those conversations. Even if they make us uncomfortable, those are important conversations to be had. If they want yeah. to know why this treatment was being done on this child or why this person wasn't consulted. Yeah. Um, it is important because we you know we always say that the per, the therapist working with the child is the expert on that child. They're the ones there day in and day out working with the child. And we may put a protocol or a treatment in place and kind of not be there the next day necessarily. So if the therapist has something to say about it or an objection or a question or a concern, those yeah. should be heard because they really are, you know, on the front lines working with the child. Absolutely. Um, well, Tamara, thank you so much for being here and sharing no problem. your story with us. And I hope that you continue to, you know, give back to the community. You clearly have so much to contribute to the field. And I hope you mm-hmm. continue to grow and ask the questions. Yeah, and absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, be the best ABA therapist that, that you can be. <laughs> For sure. I still got a lot of work to do, but yes. (laughs) Great talking to you, Tamar. Thanks so much. No problem. Thanks for joining today's conversation. Wherever you get your podcast, please go and subscribe, rate and review so others can find out about us too. For more from How to ABA, including free resources and ABA materials, visit our blog at howtoaba.com. And make sure that you're following us on social media for more practical tips and updates.